come to you now and ask that you might open your book for us this morning. Thank you for giving it to us so that we can know you better. We can find out about how to know you and how to know you better. So guide me as one sharing it this morning. Let my words be pleasing to you and glorifying to our, our Savior. Open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us, not only as a group, but each one of us individually. For you know the heart of every person here. We can hide from one another. We can keep things secret from one another. But we can't from you. So we pray that you'd use your word in each of our lives as you know that we need it. And we pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. So turn, uh, I think for the last time this morning, in Acts 16, finish out this section. Uh, the title of this now five-part sermon is, uh, you know, a Christian response to a pagan world. It's how we, we can interact or respond, how we should interact and respond to a pagan culture and you know, I, I, I kind of thought as that uh, Chris was writing about people thinking of the, the Christianity in, in light of the, <laughs> the Christian nation that we live in, you know, from Hollywood. It, yeah, we know it's not a Christian nation. We know that, it, that we live in a pagan culture, actually, and it's becoming more outwardly and passionately pagan uh, before us day by day. So this is a really good passage, not only for us to see what Paul was doing in his ministry, but also to see what we should be doing in ministry. Uh, for surely God has called all of us who know him to share him with other people. And that's what Paul is really doing in this passage. It starts in verse 16. I'm not going to read from there. But in 16 through verse 21, it's kind of the background before Paul's sermon that he preaches there in Athens. And he's arrived in the city by himself, which was highly unusual. He usually traveled with two or three at the minimum. But he had to get out of town fast, out of Berea, because uh, the enemy had come to attack him, and other believers were concerned for his life. So they sent him on a ship, got to Athens. And he's there for a number of days. We don't know the number. And he's uh, going around the city, as you might do if you traveled to another city that you hadn't been to before. And as he's walking around the city, everywhere he goes, everywhere, every niche, every door, every set of steps, every column, idols, idols, idols. I had mentioned before history shows, one writer said at at the time that Paul would have visited there, there would have been an estimate of about 30,000 idols within the city, including an idol to an unknown god. Let's cover our bases, make sure we've got all our bases covered, so uh, an idol to an unknown God. Paul begins to speak with people. First, he went to the synagogue, which was his normal practice, to go where Jewish people gathered to worship, and uh, he did what he normally did. He he, uh, talked to them from the Old Testament, read a passage, say, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And then he would go other places, like the marketplace, which was not the, the mall as such. It was more than that. It was a place where government business was done, where people would meet to talk about any number of things. It wasn't just a buying center, even though 
we see the English word marketplace. It was the agora. And uh, while he's there, he's talking to all kinds of people there too. Common people, like you might talk to if you're just, you know, at the airport and you engage someone in a conversation and you're at the store, you engage someone in a conversation, that kind of thing. He's just talking with people, not not about the, the beauty of the city, but about the Lord. And then while that's happening, there are some elite groups that engage him in conversation, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And so he begins to tell them about the Lord as well. And that's, you know, they thought that they were hearing some really strange things. Like he was talking about foreign deities that they were not used to hearing about. They didn't know the name Jesus. And they probably thought that the word resurrection, anastasis in Greek, was another God. So maybe two new gods that he was talking about, Jesus and the resurrection. And then they said, well, come on, we're going to take you to uh, the Areopagus, which was probably located on Mars Hill. It could have been in the marketplace. But the point is that it was where the elite philosophers and possibly government authorities would meet. And the point of bringing him to the Areopagus was to... Um, hear more of what he had to say with the view of whether they would allow him to continue to say it. You know, we have in our constitution free speech, which is being hindered a lot nowadays, but, you know, and they kind of did in the Greek world too and in the Roman world, but they had the authority to say, nope, no more. And, and so they, they, they basically take him there to evaluate and that's where we pick it up in verse 22. And we read his sermon, which is in verse 22 through uh, 31. So let's read that one more time together. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now he's not saying that God is the unknown God that they are thinking of. He's saying, you think there's an unknown God that you just can't know about. I'm telling you, there is a God, the one true God, who you can know. And he continues, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we've already uh, talked about the fact that there are three main points that Paul makes about God in these verses. The first of which was that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. That's what he said in, in the first part of that, uh, the, the God who, who made the world and everything in it. And he goes on to say, not only did God create it, he made it out of nothing, but he also sustains it, which was emphasizing a couple of different things. One, that God is transcendent, and above all, his power is unlimited. But it also emphasizes that he is imminent. He's transcendent, above us, independent of us, independent of everything, and yet he is imminent, meaning he is intimate, he is personal, he's right with his uh, people that he's created in his image. So he's the creator God who also sustains all things. The second thing that we saw, that we looked at last week, uh, is that 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 God is both sovereign and he is the seeker. He is sovereign and the seeker. Not only did he create everything, sustaining it, but he is also controlling it all. He even controls the paths that the fish of the sea swim in. So if you don't catch a fish this summer when you're fishing for salmon, blame God. Because God is actually in control of the fish that are in the rivers or the seas. If you go, like to go hunting and you don't get an animal, it's because God didn't bring you an animal. He's in control of that. And he's more to the point, he's in control of what goes on in our lives. The back surgery that I just had recently, what's going on with my wife, Rick's knee, cancer, COVID. He's in control of it all. He's over it all. That should give us great comfort great comfort that our God is sovereign. He's not weak, a weak sovereign. Not weak like a lot of people think of President Biden now. You know, he's a weak guy. He's just controlled by outside groups. Our God isn't controlled by anyone. He's in control. But add to that the beauty of that the sovereign God is the one who seeks people out to have an intimate, growing relationship with them. Now, what Paul is saying in these verses is said throughout the Old Testament, even though he doesn't quote a reference and quote a, a verse as such, he's contextualizing his message to people that don't know the Old Testament, don't know there is an Old Testament, don't care that there is an Old Testament. He's contextualizing the truth, but he's standing firm in the truth. The same things that are said in the Old Testament to the children of Israel and to the nations, he's saying to them. Same truth. So we contextualize the message to the audience that is before us. Well, we contend for the truth always. God is a fixed point. He is immovable. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never change. He's unchangeable. He's a fixed point. While every culture and every person is a moving point. Cultures change, don't they? Boy, has our culture changed. And you know it from your own life. You've changed too. The biggest change, if you know Christ, that's where it occurred. That was the biggest change. Your whole life changed. You think differently. You desire different things. I mean, your whole life, in a sense, gets turned right side up. 
it was upside down. And you come to know Christ and now you're right side up because you are right with God. And so, you know, we, we live in a world that talks a lot about people seeking God or having faith in God, right? And the truth is no one seeks for God. No sinner seeks for God. That's what Paul would write in Romans 3 that is quoted out of Psalm 14. There is no one who does good. No, not one. There is none who seek for God. None, none, none. Zip, nada. Not one. Well, what, about, what do you say about those people that are seeking God? If they truly are, it is only because God has put a hook in them and he's drawing them. Jesus said that in John, in John 6. No one comes to the Father, and no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. And all that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. It's God who seeks people. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. And that's what you see as ministry being, reaching out as we are to reach out to the lost. We are to be the seekers. Don't wait for someone to seek you out, right? Well, I, I hope that, you know, if someone asks me, I'll be ready. Because Peter said, you know, uh, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Yes, we should be. We should be. But we should be seeking people out so that we can engage them, so that we can give them the answer before they ask the question. God is both sovereign and he is the seeker. And the whole reason that he interacts with you know, those created in his image that have separated themselves from him because of their sin, and they're born with that, a sin nature, and then they become sinners in practice because they're sinners by nature, you know, they have no path to God. They could never make it right with God. They're helpless to do so. They're ungodly. They're enemies. God has to be the one to reach out, seek. And he does. I'm so thankful when he reached out to me, when he sought me out and drew me to faith in his son. Hopefully you would say the same thing. And wouldn't we want that for others? We should. That's the heart of God. That's what we see in this text, that he reached out so that they might feel their way to him, so to speak, is how he puts it. And, and I, I told you last week that, that 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 language is like they're in the dark. The word that's translated feel their way, that phrase, is one word and basically means feel their way in the dark. We, you all know what that's like. You've been in a room, the lights go off, and it's you can't see your hand in front of your face, and you're feeling your way, you don't want to run into the table, or you're trying to find the light switch, and you know, you're just kind of feeling, that's what the lost are like, they're in the dark. That's how this scripture describes them. But God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So he wants to draw them into the light. That's why he interacts with them. That's why he seeks them, to draw them into light. And that's why we should. Because God wants us to be light that shines in the darkness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Oh Lord, let us be like you. The third point that he makes, this is where we're picking up fresh today, the third point that he makes is that the one true God is both just and 
the judge to whom all will give an account. He is both just and the judge to whom all will give an account. This is verses 30 and 31. So let me read that again. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul moves to his final point by drawing a contrast between how God dealt with previous generations. How long back? Since Genesis. And he says, God overlooked their sin with the view of what he would do with his son. So God dealt with them this way in the past and now, and when he says now, he means since Christ entered the world, since Christ lived a perfect life, since Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, since Christ rose from the dead, since Christ ascended into heaven. From, that's now and forward, right? And, and he says God you know, overlooked their sins. Um, and, and what that means is that he overlooked their ignorance is what it says. He overlooked their culpable ignorance. What does that mean, culpable ignorance? They were responsible for their ignorance because they had shut God off. They had shut him out. They had rejected the revelation of God that he had already made himself known through creation. And a lot of people are that way in our world too, aren't they? They just shut God up. They're culpably ignorant. They, no one's going to get before God as a, a judgment and say, I've got an excuse for not believing. Romans 1 says they'll be without excuse. Because that which is known about God, God has made known. He's made it evident, first through his creation, secondly through his scriptures, and ultimately and perfectly through his Son. So God had overlooked their ignorance, not in the sense of condoning it, but in the sense that he was patiently looking forward to the time when he would send forth his son into this world and completely and finally deal with sin's penalty penalty through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Hmm. That's long-term thinking, isn't it? I mean, it wasn't long to God because he's timeless, but I mean, we think of it as being long. You know, whether that's 4,000 years, 5,000 years from Genesis to the time of Christ, you know, there are differing opinions on that, but it's a long time. And all those sins of the people in the Old Testament, including the sins of those who became saved by grace through faith and what God had revealed to them, God, in a sense, had overlooked their sin. And had never really dealt with them ultimately and completely. That took a greater sacrifice. So God is consistently, consistently seen in the scripture as the one who patiently waits for people to come to their senses, to realize that they are off from him, that they're separate from him, that they need to repent and and believe in what God has revealed to them. Let me give you a, a couple examples. Think of Genesis 6, Noah. It's written there. It says, God looked down from heaven and he saw that the intents and thoughts of every man's heart was evil continually. And he said, I'm not going to put up with this much longer. Well, in our thinking, it's long, much longer. But God said, I'm going to give him 120 years. 
And while I'm giving them 120 years, no, I want you to build an ark. And that'll be part of my way of, of speaking to them. Because no one knew what an ark was. No one knew what rain was. Why would you need a boat? But God had intended to basically destroy all life on earth, save, you know, pairs of animals and eight people, Noah and his family. Others would have been invited, but they rejected. They rejected. And, and God, isn't that patience? I mean, we barely have patience for a minute or two if we want something done. How many times did you say as a kid growing up, I can't wait. I can't wait for school to get out. I can't wait till we go to Disney World. I can't wait till, and we still do that as, you know, I can't wait till we go out to dinner this Friday. Or I can't wait till, you know, I get a new job. Or I can't wait till we have kids. Or I can't, we say that a lot. Aren't you glad that God waits? And he's patient. He was. One other example, Pharaoh and the children of Israel. And the children of Israel are in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. We read about that in Exodus. And then uh, Moses is out in the desert taking care of animals because he had to flee uh, Egypt. And uh, God shows up and talks to him, reveals himself in a burning bush that doesn't burn up. And he says, uh, hey, Moses, I'm going I'm to send you back. I've heard the cries of my people how much they're suffering, and it's moving me. I'm going to send you back, and I'm going to deliver them from captivity. And there's a whole dialogue between God and Moses about can Moses do it or not. You know, he's not skilled in speech, and he tries to get out of it. God said, I made your mouth. Well, I, I, I'm not impressive. Throw it on your staff. Pick it up. It's, you know, it's, it becomes a snake. Now pick it up. It becomes a staff again. You know, things like that. You've probably read that. And, and so Moses would go back, and he was told to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And over a period of time, Pharaoh just keeps on hardening his heart. And by the way, it says God also hardened his heart just as many times. Anyway, Pharaoh says, no way. I need you. <laughs> this is our economy we're talking about. This is our workforce. You think we Egyptians want to build these buildings and... You know, you can think of the pyramids or whatever. But, you know, you think we want to do that? You think we want to bring in the crops? And we don't touch sheep. They're despicable to us. But we want the meat and we want the, the wool. And it's like, no way. I'm not letting you go. God said, yes, you will. And you, you know the story, right? Ten plagues. And each one of those plagues was a direct attack against one of the gods of the Egyptians. God's saying, I'm the one true God. I'm bigger. I'm greater. Those are all imaginations of man. But that took a long time. It took a long time. God was very patient with his own people, too, when they're walking through the wilderness, aren't they? Complaint. Why did you bring us out here? God brought us out here to kill us. We had it so good in Egypt. We loved being slaves. Well, they didn't say that, but they loved the melons and the leeks and the onions and, you know, the meat and the fresh fish daily. And you don't get that out in the desert too much. But God was so patient with them. For 40 years, he was very patient with them. And read on in the Old Testament. God is so patient. 
Now listen to Paul as he describes this elsewhere, how patient God is and how he's looking forward to the, the fixed day when he'd send his son into the world and so that judgment could rightly fall on people and sin could be dealt with. So Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word means satisfaction by his blood. God's wrath had to be satisfied to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, that he is righteous, holy, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, still be understood to be righteous, just, perfectly so, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, some people might think, well, God is so just, he would never let anyone who has sinned into heaven. Hmm. In that sense, yes. But God made a way for the sinner to become a saint by receiving the imputed righteousness that robed them while their filthy garments of sin were placed on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God is just. He remains just. He cannot be other than just. But he could also at the same time be the justifier of those who have faith because his righteousness, his holiness, his justice had been satisfied in the death of Christ when God placed his wrath towards sin on his son so that we might be given the gift, gracious gift of eternal life. But Paul says here, God did that in the Old Testament. He overlooked it. He he was forbearing. But now God commands all people everywhere to repent. So this is God's final word on the matter, isn't it? Isn't that what he's saying? Now, it's different. From now on, it's not the same. He's not overlooking the sins as he did in the uh, Old Testament. Not overlooking their culpable ignorance. You can't remain ignorant, he said. And even these people that he's speaking to, they couldn't remain ignorant because Paul tells them the truth about Jesus. They hear, they're accountable for hearing it. So it's now time to cut to the chase, basically. People must repent before the Lord or they will be judged by the Lord. That's clearly what he is saying. So when the true nature, the full, unadulterated nature of God was revealed in Jesus Christ, his son, who was raised from the dead, the times of ignorance ended. Now you say, well, I, you know, I hear this word repent, and I even read it uh, you know, every now and then in the Bible, but I'm not sure I know what it means. I think a lot of people are that way. In fact, they know that they don't like the word, even though they may not know what the word means, because it sounds so harsh. It sounds so judgmental, <laughs> right? 
You must repent. Well, that word, uh, there are a couple different words uh, in the New Testament for repentance. This one is, uh, the Greek word is metanoia. It's a compound word. Meta means after. Noia refers to thinking or thought or to the mind. So what is repentance in this sense? It is now that God has spoken to me, revealed to me that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that the only way I can be forgiven is through this sacrifice of the Son of God, I change what I think. I'm no longer going to trust in all those 30,000 idols or the idol to an unknown God. I, 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 I change the way that I think. It's an afterthought, isn't it? You hear or see the truth and you change the way that you think. Now listen, repentance also means, and there's another word that specifically has that meaning, is to turn. Is to turn. So we're not just talking about intellectual things here. We're talking about what we think determines how we behave. Because what we think is what we believe, and our belief drives our emotion, it, it, it drives our desires, it drives our behaviors. And so repentance is changing the way that you think, first of all, about who is God and what God requires and who you are and what you need and how God gives it. I, I, I'm no longer going to trust in myself. I'm no longer going to trust in my money. I'm no longer going to trust in my wife or my children or my parents. I'm no longer going to trust in anyone else other than God. It is going to be what Pastor Greg talked about in Matthew and the Beatitudes. I'm coming to God poor of spirit. Nothing in my hands I bring before God. Only to the cross I cling. That's what repentance does. It changes us inside and out. And that's what Paul says. Now, every God commands. This isn't a request. This isn't a suggestion, right? God commands people everywhere to repent. Of what? Well, again, of their rejection of the truth that God has already revealed to them in creation. Or the rejection of their false beliefs, their false idols, recognition that these aren't gods, these are the imaginations of their own mind. It's creation, you know, and creating an image of a God that they would like to, to have because they could control that God and not be held accountable by that God. And, and so repent of idolatry. And the truth is, idolatry really, you know, is us setting anything above God as the object of our trust, of our time, of our thoughts, our energy, our life. They, you know, this is people worshiping the works of their hearts and hands. And when they do that, they are denigrating God, who is the one true God. And they're denigrating themselves because they were created in his image. So they must repent or they will be judged for their sin. That's as true today as the day that Paul said it to the Athenians. And in the context of Paul speaking to the Athenian philosophers, I mean, he's stressing a couple of different things to these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I mean, he's saying, you know, mankind's not moving toward total distinction like the Epicureans believed and taught. 
And they're not moving towards being absorbed into the universe, the pantheistic views of the Stoics. Rather, mankind is rapidly headed towards final judgment under the wrath of God. Hmm. The scripture stated this way elsewhere. It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that, judgment. Judgment. We have this time in this life to repent and believe. If we've not done that, when we die, we are judged and forever separated from God. But to cap it off, our judge is the resurrected God-man, Jesus. I mean, the resurrection of Jesus itself suggests, doesn't it, that there's life beyond the grave? It does. Not just for him, but it's a reality for all. And therefore, since God has the power to extend life, and he does to every single person, everyone will live forever, whether it is with God or apart from him. Since he has the power to extend life, doesn't it stand to reason that he also has the authority to execute judgment over those lives? Not just because he's the creator and sustainer and the sovereign and the seeker, but because he is the... He's just and he is the judge. And he must do what is right. Therefore, the proof uh, that uh, Paul is talking about, that there is this life after the grave, it's not extinction or absorption. The proof was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus that God will judge the world because Jesus is both God and man. Only as man could he die for man. He is the son of man representing us to God. And as God, he could not sin, and his sacrifice had absolute benefit for any who would believe. He says it right there. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has planned. Did you get that? He has fixed a day. Now, you should know this. Your life has been fixed by God as well. You have appointed, ordained days that you will live, breathe, and have your being. It's appointed by God. It's it's fixed by God. You don't get one day more or one day less. And you can't plead with God, you know, to, to, to give you more. There's one guy that did that, Hezekiah. And actually, he got 15 more years because God obviously designed it that way. But it didn't really work out for him. He became more and more self-centered after he got that extension of life. But your day is fixed. You don't know what day it is. I don't know what day it is. Only God knows what day it is that you're going to die. It could be today. Any one of us, we could leave here. Well, We may not even get out of here. Any one of us could just kill over and die. Kind of my long-term desire is, you know, my last day, preach a sermon, fall over, have a memorial, <laughs> enjoy the Lord. I'd enjoy him, you'd enjoy him. I doubt that God will do that, but God could do that. That'd be great. But he's fixed a day for me. But let's say that we get out of the building. We drive out on the street. We, 
hit by another car. You don't know if that's going to, oh, no, I'm a careful driver. <laughs> yeah, it's everyone else that isn't. And God may direct that car to cross a lane and hit you head on because it's your fixed day to meet him and stand before him for judgment. Or it might be, it might be a disease. It might be cancer. It could be COVID. I know we've, we've kind of given up on COVID taking lives. But let's, you know, it could be sickness, right? There's still people dying of COVID, by the way. And no one's thinking, today's my day. I'm going to take my last breath, unless the doctor in the hospital told them, you got about 24 hours. Then they might think that. But they're not thinking that. No one wakes up and thinks, today's my day. I may, you know, be rock climbing and fall and die. Or I might go up in a small plane to view some of the beauty of Alaska. And God's got a plan for that engine to quit. And that's it. Man, this is a downer message. Talking about death. No, I'm, I'm not really talking about death. I'm talking about the life that you can have. The day of your physical life ending, that's fixed by God. What he has for you, if you are one who has repented and put your faith in Christ, is unending. There's no fixed day of end for that. It's eternal life with the Lord. Whew. So, he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. What man is that? What's the God man? Jesus. How do you know he's both God and man? Because he's given assurance by raising him from the dead. Paul would say in Romans 1.4, he was a descendant of David according to the flesh, but he was proved to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. So he's the God man. He's different than anyone. And he's provided for us that something that only he could. He gives us eternal life when we repent and believe in him, but he promises judgment to those that don't. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish and have eternal life. Woohoo! John 3, 16. Everyone knows it. John 17 and 18. Not so much. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but... The world might be saved through him, but everyone living in the world is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And the only way to be saved, to have eternal life, is to believe in him. Repent of your sin and believe in him. The Bible's beautifully consistent, isn't it? So, here's my point in this. How does does this then reach us? What should we take from this? Well, here's one thing. If we don't arrive in our conversation with the culture or with the individuals that God gives us appointments with, like he did with Chris, if we don't arrive at Jesus and the resurrection as the basis of both judgment and forgiveness, we've not got to the point where we need to get. I'm not saying that needs to be in every conversation, but that's where it needs to go with the people that God brings into your life, into our lives and, and that judgment is not going to be based on how good a person is or you know, how sincere they were in their religious beliefs or how much better they were than anyone else. It's not. It's not based on that. It's based on what do you do with Jesus. Everybody is going to be held accountable before God 
on the basis of whether they've repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of, of Jesus from the dead is the clear evidence that judgment will be based upon one thing, rejection or reception of the gospel. It is as though Paul could, would have written this, what I have proclaimed to you is the truth. And the gospel is the only truth that will put you in a right standing with the, the one true God. Not an unknown God, but one, the one true God. If you need manifest evidence of the gospel, look to Jesus. Because he's still alive. He'll never die. Okay, I was wrong when I started today. I was either wrong in telling you that this would be a three-hour sermon or that we'd finish the passage today. (laughs) I can wrap it up really quick. It's pretty, you know, that's where the sermon ends. Hopefully we've learned a lot about how we should contextualize the message for the people that God brings into our lives. But always faithfully contend for the truth that comes out of the scripture. And that's the word that can be trusted. God's word. There were three responses that Paul faced in verses 32 through 34. Let me read those verses. You'll see it. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So a first response, ridicule. And if you're faithfully sharing the gospel, you'll get that too. People will mock you. They'll ridicule. Listen, Jesus said, blessed are you when people say all manners of evil against you and they curse you and they mock you on account of my name. So let's not be surprised if people mock or ridicule us for our belief in the gospel. Let us not fear the ridicule of those who are expressing the truth and unrighteousness and ungodliness. Those who have believed the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator Let's not, let's not let that deter us. Let's not be afraid of them. The, the command that is given more in Scripture than any other command to the children of God. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Let's not be surprised or fearful. The second is, is, is procrastination. Again, back to the verses. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. Now, that could be that they were sincerely saying, we would like to talk to you again about this tomorrow. Or it could mean that they're doing what a lot of people do. Oh, that's interesting. I'll give that some thought. Um, I, you know, I'll get, I'll get to that. So I remember when I was 16 years old, talking to my brother who was sharing the gospel with me, and I said, you know, I'll, I'll get to that. I'm young. Within a few months, I was in a car crash where I very easily could have lost my life. And God did this. Are you paying attention to me? And I got the message. That was him drawing me. Sometimes this drawing is nice and slow and very comfortable. Other times, you know, it feels good. Other times it's like, whoa! That was scary. But the end result is beautiful in either case. So, you know, they procrastinate. And and people do that uh, Often, probably you get more of that than anything else. 
be be ready. That people will just kind of well, that you know, I'm glad that you found that, and maybe I'll find that too. And if you really want to keep talking to them, don't let them just do that with you. Just keep confronting them with the truth. You know, your day is going to run out. You may not get tomorrow. What did Jesus say in the parable? He said there was this guy that you know that had all this money. He thought, you know what I'll do? I'll build these big silos, store all my wealth, basically, and uh, you know it'll all be good. I can retire and enjoy life like a lot of people think today. And Jesus said, oh, his soul was required of him that very night. Let people know. They don't know that they have a tomorrow. They don't know that they can wait. God is forbearing and patient, but he has a fixed day. And then the the last one is faith. Uh, Some joined him. And he identifies, uh, you know, a couple of them. And Areopagite and Damaris and some other other people. And and those that, you know, are sharing the gospel, trust that you'll see that too. If we're faithfully sharing the gospel, we should trust that God will take our words, because he's using our words to draw people, right? We should trust that he would draw some. Most may mock or procrastinate. Wouldn't it be great if it was just one or two, or every now and then you at least saw you know, that God used you to draw someone to repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Wouldn't it be great to know that God used you to lift the veil that Satan had put over their eyes so they couldn't see the glorious light of the gospel of Christ? And he used you to shine the light of the glory of Christ in the face so they might see and believe? That's why God has us here. That's why God has us here. So let's, as a church and as individual believers, faithfully interact with the culture, even though that's so very uncomfortable at times. Let's try to do that. And while we're contextualizing the message based on their backgrounds and you know their history and their family and their job and all of that, let's remain faithful for contending for the truth of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. It's been a joy to have you teach us. We pray that we would not only be learners in the sense of understanding, but rather learners in the sense of following, following Christ, following the instruction that you give us in the Word, following the Spirit as he prompts us. And by that, may glory come to our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, if there's someone here, I just want to pray, if there's someone here who has been procrastinating, has has really come to see that they have idols in their life and therefore they don't worship you, they don't really even know you, may you make it absolutely clear to them that the day is the day that you want them to turn in repentance and trust in Christ, to turn from idols to the true and living God. We ask this in his great name. Amen.